Good evening. Um, let's try and make a start then. Um, thanks very much for coming out to, tonight. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see so many people to uh, come and see a documentary screening. Um, the way we're going to do it tonight is that um, in a minute we, we shall play the documentary and then afterwards I'm going to invite uh, three uh, people to come on the on the stage and they're going to give their reaction as people who know a lot about Zimbabwean journalism and about Zimbabwe itself uh, and uh, then we're going to sort of throw it open as well to, to yourselves to get your response to the documentary and the wider issues that we think it raises. Um, I should explain first, uh, my name is Charlie Beckett, I'm the director of POLIS. POLIS, as the name implies, uh, is interested in if you like, the politics of media and the media uh, internationally. We're uh, a news media think tank. We're a partnership between the Media and Communications Department here at the LSE and journalism at the London College of Communication. Um, and as I say, we've particularly got an interest in international media issues. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had... Uh, extremely good event looking at media freedom in uh, Putin's Russia um, and later this term we're also having an event looking at uh, media freedom in China um, and that's in amongst very many other strands of work uh, and lectures and seminars that we do and there's loads of information if you haven't already got it uh, by the door there's information about Polis um, and our strand of work this year um, I'm extremely delighted to uh, have this documentary, partly because it's a remarkable piece of work. Uh, when Shrenik first got in touch with us and said, oh yeah, I've been to Zimbabwe and I um, did a bit of filming and I got a few interviews, um, obviously I was very curious because as a journalist myself, I'm very aware, aware of how hard it is to get anything out of Zimbabwe and in a sense how hard it is to get anything coherent and significant um, that reports upon international affairs which isn't about the latest famine or coup or uh, election changeover. And I was especially pleased when I actually got to see the documentary because, well, I'll leave it you to judge for yourselves, but I think at the very least, it's, uh, as a journalist, I think it's a, a remarkable achievement to have put together such a remarkable insight and to gather so many significant voices um, to talk at some length and with some feeling uh, about what's happening in Zimbabwe itself. Um, so in a minute, as I say, we're going to um, have a discussion. Not in a minute, in 40 minutes. So, um, but first, Shrenik, if you'd like to come do the business, because whenever I do this, it inevitably disappears into a kind of black hole or the ether and it's never seen again. So um, over to Shrenik Rao who's going to um, launch, yeah. launch the documentary. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I really, really appreciate you guys taking your time. Uh, I would really appreciate your honest uh, comments, opinions. I'm very honored that uh, my professors who have taught me uh, are here. Thank you very much for taking the time to come. <coughs> okay.
determination is you and of you what is
we switched on at 6 p.m. and switched off at 6 a.m. But the significance of the eternal flame is that the souls of those who are buried on this shrine are still alive. And it also signifies that Zimbabwe is still alive.
the, the elite of any regime that is causing such offence to international law or anything. I think they've caused a, a bit of inconvenience to the governing elite, uh, but clearly not enough to cause them to change their mind. I don't think they're any part of the explanation of the, of the wreckage of the economy. Even though they say it's targeted sanctions, we don't think it's targeted sanctions because uh, these sanctions are even impinging on, on ordinary people. concept called smart sanctions has been imposed upon Zimbabwe claiming that there has been human rights abuse. And this is an account of how Mukabe soldiers throw the plan of Mukabe and they trained, trained by the Koreans North Koreans killed 20,000 innocent civilians. He got soldiers, they moved into villages. They were raping women there and girls. They were shooting and to kill. But this was just to punish the developed people just because of the ethnic, ethnic side. It was alleged that scores of people from the Ndebele tribe were massacred in the 1980s. Some claim that it was ethnic cleansing, while the others deny it. Let me put the record straight. This is how some people portray uh, the events at that time. It's not true. We're opposed to Gukraundi. Those are no support from both sides, I understand. As a matter of fact, we were open to each other. We talked to each other about it. We did not mean words. We didn't support dissidents. Neither did we support Gukraundi. Uh, the logic of the International Criminal Court and so on is that if there are leaders who are breaching international law, they should be subject to arrest. And Mr. Mugabe stands out as someone who is in breach of international law and international humanitarian law, but clearly either the law doesn't reach or no one is inclined to take action against him as an individual. You know who is playing all that? It's the British. Anything that they can put their finger on, they'll blow it out of proportion. That's up to Zimbabweans to decide. That's not up to anybody else, that's up to Zimbabweans to decide what's good for them. That's up to the victims of Mugabe to decide what we call restorative justice, victim-based justice. That's an issue for Zimbabweans to decide. What is important for this country is to move forward, to move beyond the crisis, to move beyond the poverty and starvation to a better world, to a better life. of power and politics, people are paying the price. You can get access to fuel, when you do get access to fuel, it's unaffordable. The 
fuel shortages you are talking about, apart from the world prices that are going up, the fuel shortages have actually surfaced uh, at the end of August 2005 and pronounced themselves further in September and of course in October. Why? Because as governor of the central bank, I diverted the resources that were meant for fuel towards the payment of our arrears with the IMF. In August, I paid 120 million US dollars, mm -hmm. which would have gone to bring in fuel sufficient for one and a half months. We went ahead and paid that 120 million US dollars fully in the knowledge that to do so was going to deprive this economy of certain aspects. But, but when national interests are at stake, when a, a country's sovereignty is at stake, it is incumbent on that country and those in charge of the economy to do whatever it takes to defend those interests. We could have bought nine months worth of grain of food using the 120 million US dollars, which would have driven a food inflation down, but we chose a principle uprightness of the country as taking precedence over that. Therefore, every Zimbabwean, by virtue of that deprivation, has contributed to the payment of our arrears. Inflation is 4,000 percent. Businesses have closed down. Many, many factories have closed down. The tire factory closed down. The factory that used to make baggage in Pulau closed down. They don't have uh, foreign currency for inputs. One uh, American dollar is equivalent to 20,000 Zimbabwe dollars. The money in Zimbabwe is very precipitous. Let me tell you, this inflation, it was 1,600%. Mm -hmm. Then it came down to about 190 or so. Then it has gone back. You know, there are certain procedures that we are working on mm -hmm. that will then see to it that the, the inflation goes down. And for a nation such as Zimbabwe, it's not something that you can say it's extraordinarily amiss. Yes, and I would like to know which country on earth does not have its own fair share of challenges. I agree inflation is very high, but guess what? When we started our turnaround in Jan January 2004, inflation was at 624%. We put in place measures that brought inflation down by 500 percentage points to 124 uh, percent by March 2005, before uh, the inflation took an upward turn again as a result of predominantly the political aspects uh, which favored a different uh, election outcome from what actually transpired. And secondly, the drought which when we go back to even uh, 1901, right through to this year, you'll find that this economy has always been vulnerable to droughts, and whenever there have been droughts, the inflation level has always gone up. Do, is there light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a choice except to bring a macroeconomic stability back to this country? There is no choice, and failure is not an option.
policy of fast track land reform adopted by the Zimbabwean government was said to be the main cause of Zimbabwe's economic problems. But what was originally intended to rectify the inequitable distribution of land turned itself into politics of race and patronage. There's just no food. And that's due to Mugabe because he had these farms invaded without proper planning uh, in 2000. And these farms are growing trees. And those farmers went to Zambia. They are producing uh, food in Zambia. Some are in Mozambique. Others are in um, uh, Nigeria. <laughs> the unequal distribution of land on a racial basis is what couldn't be justified. Occupying ten and a half million hectares of land, eleven million hectares of land, okay, against a population of over one and a half million uh, uh, families involved in agriculture in communal areas. That could not be justified. Now, I would say there were only five percent of the population, the white people. They were owning half the land and the best land in the country, while the Africans were put, pushed to a dry land. So um, we were in agreement that there should be resettlement, but it was supposed to be done orderly. But overnight, Mgai just chased out all these farmers. Zimbabweans have actually claimed the ownership of their own land. And that thing, we are not going to apologize about it. We, we want our land and we have got our land. We now have uh, the law to support that. I was at the helm of it. I'm in charge of the land reform. Fast tracking came with us wanting to expedite the resettlement. But it was spoiled by Blair. Come on, go back to the historical record. Everyone in the world agreed. There was a UN commission. Everyone was, but you see, but the international community agreed, the UN agreed, everyone who looked at good systems of land reform in Latin America agreed, mm -hmm. is that it should be transparent, focusing first on the needs of the most needy. And Mr. Mugabe didn't want that. He turned down the whole international community, Kofi Annan, the UN proposals, because he wanted to be in charge of, I think, dishing out land to his mates rather than a fair, transparent system of land reform. Mind you, this thing came as a result of the Lancaster House a constitution which was uh, drawn in 1979 when the British government agreed that they were going to pay part of the compensation to developments on the land which they then reneged which they then reneged and Aye. loads of delegations were sent to London to go and negotiate that what was agreed upon in 1979 during Langster House uh, 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 discussions should be done. And the British, for things best known to them, just uh, refused. I mean, what we had was the Lancaster House negotiation, um, Zimbabwe's independence, uh, arrangements for land redistribution absolutely needed, um, a fund provided this was under a previous government, um, 
somehow land redistribution, the fund not even fully used up. Then in 1997, our government takes over. We set up a new department for international development focused on the reduction of poverty across the world. And the question was, were we, the Department for International Development, going to do a new land redistribution scheme? So we were not part of any historical settlement. Where our overwhelming focus is on the needs of poor people. There are a lot of poor people in Zimbabwe living in overcrowded lands that would be our kind of priority. So what I was saying in the letter is that we will come to this afresh in terms of the interests of poor people and not as part of some sort of historical writing of wrongs. This, this is now what the British wanted to use to determine our destiny. And we said of our dead body. We cannot have that. And I think Mr Mugabe was negligent in driving forward land redistribution in his 20 years in power. And I think he only came to refocus on the question when he found himself unpopular after so many years in power. Um, and then he started going back to banging the drum for when he'd been at the height of his popularity. So it's absolutely right that the new Department for International Development's interest was focusing on the needs of the poor. There were a lot of poor landless people in Zimbabwe who deserved help and support. But we didn't come in at that late stage as part of a historical deal because of Britain's responsibilities to colonial exploitation in Zimbabwe. See, what happened was this. There was a referendum in February 2000, February 14th. Mukare was rejected. People went to vote. By 55% they rejected that constitution. When Mukare was very upset, he realized that they were now, MDC was getting powerful. He was now going to, they were now going to kick him out of power. So what did he do? He decided the only way to break the, because a lot of the conventional white farmers, we had joined the new party, the MDC, or Movement for Democratic Change. So then he decided to break the MDC. He was going to grab the farms and chase out these whites. Uh, because otherwise there was going to be, in June that year there was going to be a general election and he was afraid. The general election he was going to lose. So he decided just to kick out all these rights and grab the farms. You look, the, the people of this country have been deprived of their land right for nearly 100 years, my brother. And now the country was independent. We are told by Britain at Lancaster House not to implement our land policy until after 10 years. We, we listened to that. That's why when our people heard that now the whites here were refusing to pursue the policy we had agreed at the international conference, that's when they invaded the land. That's where all these ills came about. It is the Blair government that influenced the farmers here to do what they did and therefore made it very difficult for us to implement our land policy as we would have liked it. The British refused to work together with us in a much more um, dignified way. We did not want our people, yes, to do what they did. 
But what could we have done? We had no other means. Do you think we could have unleashed the police and the army to go and kill those that had demonstrated on the land? No. Politics of race raised its ugly head and a deep sense of revulsion has been triggered by a colonial past. South Africa and his parents were heroes of the resistance. But the way he talked somehow sounded as though Britain was trying to tell Zimbabwe what to do. I mean, I think it, in, at the time, invoked those kind of memories. But the opposition accuses Robert Mugabe of playing the populist race card to remain in power. divided by narrow political interests. There was an opposition movement. Uh, it didn't succeed. There's so much division also in the opposition. The Movement for Democratic Change, or the MDC as it is called, is divided into two factions. One faction led by Morgan Changrai and the other faction led by Professor Arthur Mutambara. They're divided and constantly fight amongst themselves. Who can take us to the promised land? That's neither here nor there. Morgan Tsangrai has more supporters, uh, three quarters of the MDCs with him. Arthur Mtambara has only one quarter of MDC with him. And narrow political interests try to present themselves as a viable option. But divided they stand. And they seem to be united only on one issue. And that is the overthrow of Robert Mugabe's government. The opposition parties are not going to compete against each other. They are going to present a united front against Mugabe. In other words, for example, for the presidency, we will present a single candidate. Who that candidate is, is a secondary debate and discussion, which we haven't resolved for now. I say that I will be ready to lead the Zimbabweans and stand in front of blazing guns to, to, to bring Mugabe down. And I'm prepared to work under anybody or any political party that can transform our country from poverty to prosperity, to success, to uh, a globally competitive economy. However, if it requires that I become president to achieve that result, so be it. 
the opposition claim that there is a need for a constitutional reform. Laws like IPA, Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, have become a means to curtail freedom of expression. The legitimacy that such laws give to the government is a predetermining factor in winning the elections. The legitimacy we have in our country is because of bad electoral laws. The legitimacy we have in our country is because of bad laws like IPA and POST. We don't need those laws. If we have a democratic government that has won an election that is free and fair, they don't need to be sustained in power by using POSA and IPA. There's a lot of fear, there's intimidation. Mugabe is using his uh, state intelligence uh, for intimidation. That is common cause. He controls the state, he controls the country, and there's the politics of patronage in the country. Anyone who supports the opposition is victimized. Change seems inevitable, but it is entangled with politics and power, and only time will tell. We are saying to Robert Mugabe and Zanu PF, you can go to hell and hang. Mugabe must go. He's a very old man, he's not going to last forever. When he goes, there will be a chance for the people of Zimbabwe to change their country, but I don't know exactly how it's going to be changed, but it will be changed because it gets ever worse. The game change they talk about is to cut, to, to remove a genuine government of the people of Zimbabwe and replace it with a puppet government that they are going to tell what to do and that we will have a kind of neo-colonialism in this country. We want change in Zimbabwe. There are people who think they can change Mugabe, they are just smoking a dream pipe. It is an issue of perception. Nonsense. Nonsense.
Good evening, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. Somewhere on your desk, on your seats, would have found a little bit uh, bio, which would uh, put into context who or how I ended up in this conversation. I am a Zimbabwean. I am a Zimbabwean. I am in my late 50s, contrary to my good looks. I, I have, um, I have, um, I have uh, two grandchildren whom I adore very much. We're the only two people on the planet who correct called the, the both. I, I'm not going to bite anybody. I'm not a member of a political party. I don't represent anybody, but I speak as somebody who was shaped and formed by the Liberation War. And one of the things I hope I want to be able to share with you is my insight into conversations been emerging from that film, as it were. So that's a kind of way of describing it. I'm deliberately choosing that way, because some of the time, the way in which I'm introduced presumes I have a direct line to God. I don't. <laughs> Uh, and then, Brilliant Malanga, uh, you're currently studying at University of Westminster. Um, uh, you were an activist in Matavila land, and you've been in Zimbabwe recently as well, haven't you? Yeah, just a few weeks actually. Yeah. Good. Yeah, well, do you want to kick us off, really, with just, first of all, your reaction to that film, and what you, your, your reaction to it, but what you, how accurate you feel that those kind of messages are, and how you think they contrast with uh, the kind of messages we get about Zimbabwe uh, in the rest of the media? Yeah, first of all, um, anyway, I must first start by saying I am a, a direct victim of the genocide that was referred to as Kukurawundi. I'm a direct survivor, let me put it that way, of that genocide. Um, so when they referred to it there, I felt uh, it is one of the first, you know, few instances when the issue of the genocide is referred to. And unfortunately, the international community has been aware of this for quite a long time and they have not been acting on it. But generally, uh, the film, I felt it captures quite a lot of issues, although, well, as a media person, I want to believe there is nothing that just happens without a particular angle and bias to it. And as, as a result of that, I felt the there is something that obviously sought to give, I mean, that gave impetus to that kind of uh, thing. And I felt that it was giving the politicians, uh, actually, in the ruling party, uh, some bit of say for them to explain themselves, which I felt as well is uh, something that has been missing for quite a long time in the media fraternity. We have had the media that has been uh, on the offensive and demonizing. Yes, I am opposed to the system in Zimbabwe, and I don't hide that, and I'm not apologetic to that, but I want it to be clear. Uh, there is need as well. If we want to build a Zimbabwe, we want to see tomorrow as a perspective, I mean, as a prosperous Zimbabwe, we would be expecting uh, to even give the voice to those who are oppressing us. That is the point. So I felt uh, the film is doing quite, uh, you know, something quite positive, really, by trying to give uh, the leading uh, politicians or the ruling politicians a voice. However, the problem with uh, what I saw in some instances is that maybe the person who actually was conducting that research uh, is not so well versed with the, the political nuances taking place in Zimbabwe. As a result, there are a lot of other statements that are said that are contrary to what actually is happening in Zimbabwe. You see, we have MDC, Movement for Democratic Change, portrayed as the only opposition party in Zimbabwe, which is not true. And it's unfortunate that that, that film portrays that, that way. We hope one day that uh, issue will be addressed. 
And I think that is one thing that has caused, uh, I mean, most of the problems in Zimbabwe. It has aggravated the situation to this extent. This is one of the reasons why Zimbabweans up to this day are failing maybe to come up with a solution. Because the assumption is that it is the MDC, and MDC alone we should which should represent Zimbabweans right, left, and center from uh, one part of the country to the other, which is not very true, really. And you see, the other problem which I saw in that uh, film, which I, I, I thought I should raise, I'm very close, really quite close to Archbishop Bishop very, very close, but he belongs to the clergy. It is good that the clergy should also make a point in some instances, but you would notice that he, uh, there was constant refer I mean, reference to, his, uh, to him uh, for, for comments. We didn't see more of uh, political activists giving comments. We would have expected more political activists, particularly if the filmmaker was interested in coming uh, out with information from Matebelele, because I want to believe he acknowledged the past uh, that way. If, and if he wanted to give uh, to get a voice from Matebelele, there are a lot of political activists. But he deliberately chose to shut them out. Well, I'm not sure. But yeah. that's my take in general for uh, the film. Sandra, do you? What, what was your reaction to it? Do you think it managed to get the complexity across? Um, speaking for myself, I think um, he comes from Matabela land, I come from Mashona land. We come from very two different uh, areas that have had different fortunes in terms of um, life after uh, independence in Zimbabwe. When I looked at um, the film, I was really satisfied with what came out. He talks about genocide and um, the bias that could probably have been involved. When, when I look at the genocide in Matabela land, I look at it um, as an issue that is never even really fully exploited, or not only you know, internationally, but in terms of Zimbabweans themselves. I was born in 1974. In 1980, I was six years old. Um, I did not know much about the genocide, except being told that you must be careful. There's a man called uh, Gesela who's going about killing people. That's all that I knew about the genocide, except when I was a little bit you know, older, when I could read and comprehend what was happening. So. Nothing really has actually come out in the open to say, to tell us, you know, the people who were young in Zimbabwe, what really happened, why did this happen? And up to now, no one has said really, told the ordinary Zimbabweans what really happened in Matabela land. Even up today, what happens is you only have like international news reports they report to and just refer to the genocide and that's it. And um, I actually, you know, I think, you know, in terms of giving the Zimbabwean government a voice, to actually put their own perspective of the crisis. I think that was, you know, good. But I would have wanted to see Mugabe himself, you know, if it was possible, really coming out and, you know, you know being asked to persons to say, you know, this is what is happening. I, I believe everything that they have said in terms of the land situation in Zimbabwe, but to put it in a context, why is it that we are at, we, you know, at the stage that we are today because of this, you know, land situation? I have talked to Claire Short on a number of occasions. And she actually told me that she feels that Britain failed Zimbabwe in, 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 in every respect of the world. So there are many issues that I feel need to be discussed. I don't know, we didn't see the whole documentary. I, that's what I was told. There is, there is more probably, but I would have wanted to see the political activists, like I said. I would have wanted to see ordinary people. What do they think about the crisis? Because all we mainly have is the side of the story that has never been told for a long period of time. We have not had... You know, not, not, it's not only because journalists do not want to write about those things. Journalists do want to, you know, to, 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 to put it to the Zimbabwe government to say, what do you think about this? Why are you doing this? But they have not afforded people the chance to do that. You were lucky they did you know, give you that opportunity to talk to them, to hear what they're saying. But I, I feel 
that opportunity should not only be given to you know, you know, certain sections of the media. You know, this picking and choosing, you know, who would actually you know portray us in a better way. I feel everyone should have unfettered access to the Zanupiev government as much as the opposition. I didn't see you interviewing Morgan Changrai in the film. I would have wanted, you know, also to see him actually being given the opportunity that um, Atham Tambara had to speak about what is happening in Zimbabwe from his own perspective. Bizarre. <laughs> you know what? I tried for the exact same kind of a sound effect for my film and I couldn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, I'm, I'm, I think, you know, I'm okay. George, I want to ask you, because there's one argument, which is that um, much of the sort of coverage of Zimbabwe, in a sense, um, kind of plays to a, a sort of a role playing whereby uh, certainly from from the West that ends up actually um, playing into the, um, the allegations that Mugabe and ZANU-PF make about um, stereotypes about uh, the Zimbabwean government. How, 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 how much do you feel that um, the debate is constricted by that? Well, a great deal. I mean, I, 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 I've been, I've been, I don't really want to use this as a moment to talk about me, but you know, most serious work is difficult to talk about without being biographical at the same time. I've been either receiving and being described as somebody who is at the, at the, at the, on the, on the, on the, uh, on the payroll of the, uh, of the secret intelligence organisations in Zimbabwe. I've been somebody who has been caricatured as somebody who is a, a spokesperson for Ozan uh, PF. I've been somebody who has been described as a spokesperson for the Zimbabwe government, and that has come from uh, British media, British institutions. And if it's happening to me it becomes very difficult for me to not to, 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 not to accept the argument that Zambia makes, that somehow the construction of the Zimbabwe that people have in the West is, is pre-overdetermined by a particular version. So if I start from there. The second thing I would say is this. I mean, I came into this argument for two reasons. One, one, was, one is I grew up in Zimbabwe. I was, I, I was involved in the liberation war, independence movement then. I, I, I have lived here just as long as I lived in Zimbabwe. I have been engaged in politics both there and here. I understand the relationship between Zimbabwe and Britain as somebody who's lived in both places. And I know the kind of Zimbabwe that is talked about in the British media is, not, is like Baghdad. Zimbabwe is not Los Angeles, but the picture that continues to be consumed inside the British media is really not the kind that anybody, regardless of the political position you come from, actually. That's the first problem. The second question is, it feeds into an already existing animus inside the Middle England, if you like. It feeds into particularly a particular narrative of the way in which the West pictures thinks of what Zimbabwe is. And that means that our only way of making sense of uh, what is going on in Zimbabwe, or in the region for that matter, is truncated. Now, and I pose the question, this, what is it that the rest of the third world sees in Robert Mugabe that Britain does not see? I don't say he's right or wrong, but I pose that as a question. And if you go try and understand what that question answer is, it lies in the way the British media particularly have represented the story of Zimbabwe. And that's, the, that's, the, that's a very critical charge I'm making. Now, underlining that representation is, not far, is the prism of the story of race as it has underpinned the crisis in itself. Now, consecutive labor administrations did not call for regime change when Ian Smith was butchering people. 
you know, and you have to remember when you say that to the political constitutions in Zimbabwe, that regime change in Zimbabwe, it reminds them of an unfinished process of the liberation war. And that is not to excuse what has gone on in the country, but that is the way in which that story is consumed in our advice. But do you think that I mean, what you were hearing there from um, the vice presidents, um, was that the kind of um, articulation of the kind of things you, you think are not being heard elsewhere? Well, it's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like uh, what used to happen during Mrs. Thatcher's time in Northern Ireland when every voice of Sinn Féin was acted by an actor and nobody used to really used to know what Sinn Féin stood for. And in many ways, Zimbabwe has become like that. Every now and again, you find a little clip from a Zimbabwe politician. We think we can build a whole history on that. And that is a tragedy for our own learning, for our own knowledge, for our understanding. And I think the closure of those voices, whether you like them or not, means we are unable to interrogate them properly. And that's the point I'm making. So by the time Wedham Sika is saying one thing or um, Changrai is saying another, it's already truncated in a particular way. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think that is good for the kind of production and circulation of knowledges. I think it's a closure of the way in which we're supposed to engage with those questions. And that's the, the tragedy of the way in which Zimbabwe is discussed. Now, I, I, let, me, let me just kind of insert something there. <clears throat> you, I, you, no one, in my view, no one can come into political dominance in Zimbabwe, in the region for that matter, who does not have a political persuasion that talks about a distributive instinct. Yes? I don't want to use the word socialist. You have funny ideas about that word. I call it distributive instinct. And the distributive instinct is precisely what is still bothersome about this question. So you have the market on one hand, which is what you give to the people who are the rich, or bureaucracies, which is what you give to people who are poor. And the, the, in the third world, in the south, the state has to, be has to be reinvented so that it has a distributive instinct. So the choices people in Zimbabwe or in the region have got for that matter is between those two choices, a distributive politics on one hand or the market. And as long as no one can come into power in Zimbabwe without somehow delivering one way or the other the land question. And that is the stubbornness. That's the stubborn question that faces the Zimbabwean crisis. You know, Zimbabweans aren't stupid. An 83-year-old man is going to die next week. I mean, the idea that you think most of people are hoodwinked by one person is bizarre. You know, it's bizarre, to say the least. Okay. Thank you. Well, let's, let's throw it out. I don't know if there's anybody that wants to raise anything from the film or ask uh, a question uh, of the panel. Anybody out there at all want to go ahead?
Okay, let's, let's hold that one. Let's, there was something you wanted to ask a question down. Do you want to ask sorry, a quick question? Just, I'm just sorry to direct from the issue for a while, but I was wondering what Shrenix links to the work of because I never really heard him sort of introduce himself okay. and tell us what your links to the work and how you ended up doing this how much of your documentary uh, still remains uh, to be seen that we didn't see this evening? Right. We managed to edit about 20 minutes out. Let Shrenik answer first on, the, on your approach to the, to the film. Right. Uh, first of all, my links to Zimbabwe, um, I think it's Destiny's decision to sort of make me do a documentary on Zimbabwe as it were. Um, I don't have family in Zimbabwe. Um, I don't uh, come from Zimbabwe. I, I have nothing in Zimbabwe. I was fascinated uh, by. I was fast. <coughs> I was fascinated by what was going on in Zimbabwe. Um, the more I read about it, the more I wanted to know. So it was more a process of exploration, you know, trying to get to know what was happening there. Uh, and more uh, not as I saw it and I wanted to present it not as I not uh, the way I saw it but I wanted to present it like the way I heard from others right uh, but I'm not uh, there's no uh, connection family connection uh, what are my links to Zimbabwe I think it's one of the places that I really love I love Zimbabwe um, when I went down to Zimbabwe I really thought this is such an amazing place it was a fantastic place. Um, okay, I'd just like to answer a brilliant uh, question. Um, it, it wasn't really a question, but he thought I was biased in presenting my um, film. I'm thankful that I don't come from a background with a certain bias. I'm thankful that, uh, in, in a way, I find myself uh, to be much more uh, at a position where I could present a film with a lot of confidence because I don't have... Um, a bias attached to, attached to me. I didn't experience uh, what he experienced in Matabele Land. Or various other people have a lot of other experiences. And as a filmmaker, I thought it was very important for me to be very objective. Today, when we talk so much about trusting the media and whether we trust the media, can we trust this image, can't we trust this image, I thought it was very important for everybody to have an equal say. Um, whether it, was the, whether it was the government of Zimbabwe or whether it was the opposition. And so this film has come out this way. Um, why didn't I talk to more number of political activists? Where, was there any more opposition? It's easy to sit in this room uh, and talk about why not. I had spent almost two years of my life working on this. And it's something that I really find very difficult to distance myself from this product. Uh, from, from this project, as it were. Why didn't I interview political activists? Where were they? Would they talk to me on camera? No, they won't talk to me on camera. Would they, uh, would they be even... W w I wrote to uh, Morgan Changrai hundreds of times. Did he respond back to me? I was just a student at LSE who was not as important to him. I wouldn't carry across his message to him. Uh, I wouldn't carry across his message to the rest of the world, so he didn't give me a message. He didn't give me an interview. Simple as that. Arthur Mutambara, I got hold of him somehow or the other. I got his mobile phone number. I called him over and over and over and over again. And I, I landed there on his doorstep and I literally forced him to talk to me. I couldn't do that with Morgan Shangrai because he had, there was a lot of bureaucracy. 
and doing this doing all this uh when i was down in zimbabwe with limited budgets limited um time to do all this with uh, very little equipment was a challenge that i had to face so these are the practical issues i mean we can talk about um representation the discourses of representation at a theoretical level but the practical issues of working on this were quite different um Sandra, just it's partly in response to the question, but do you, do you think that, I mean, in a sense, um, Shrek's film was um, quite bleak, putting it mildly, uh, and much of the, the, the debate about Zimbabwe is characterised as around Mugabe and the idea there's almost an inevitability that nothing can change until he's gone. Um, is there a... Is there a Trinic has spoken about how difficult it is to talk openly in Zimbabwe. How possible is it to have a, um, an open political discussion in Zimbabwe? It is not easy in Zimbabwe to really have a meeting like this one that we are having today, you know, actually sitting down and discussing without getting police clearance to say uh, under the Public Order and Security Act, um, which the Zimbabwe government enacted, uh, it makes it difficult not only for opposition political parties or even for ordinary people to actually come together and say, let us talk about issues that concern us. It could be nothing to do with politics, but you have to get, as long as you're going to meet at more than five people, you need to get police clearance. And as a result, we've had so many opposition rallies being cancelled, but that is, you know, one issue that, you know, we can talk about more and, and more often. But this issue uh, that really bothers me so much is the issue of where people have just, you know, continued over and over again to centre on one person as the problem that is affecting Zimbabwe. I actually believe that we do have a problem that needs to be um, resolved to deal with our institutions in Zimbabwe to say what is the way forward. If Mugabe goes today, is the uh, institution that we have in Zimbabwe, are they definitely going to change? Are we going to have a complete, you know, set of new policies because Mugabe is gone? What of the people that Mugabe has been with for the past, you know, 27 years? Are they going to change instantly because the man is gone? Um, I think that debate has, you know, been curtailed because people are just centering at one man and thinking if he goes, then things are going to change. Um, I want to talk about, you know, the part that um, you asked about, the ZANU-PFMDC pact that um, they recently, you know, came together in Parliament and said they wanted to come together. And actually, the opposition sponsored, they did not sponsor, they supported ZANU-PF uh, when they brought this uh, amendment number 18, which uh, allows Robert Mugabe to choose a successor if he goes for parliament to actually you know, choose that uh, person. I think personally, because of the crisis that we've had for the past seven years, that, that is the only you know, way forward that we have at the moment, that the MDC and ZANU-PF should come together to discuss you know, honestly to say this, we have problems in our country. Yes, the number one problem we have is not you, you talked about the land. I feel that yes, we have a, uh, the land uh, crisis in Zimbabwe that's ne that needs to be resolved. The land is with, um, you know, the people who have been given the land. Do they have title to that land? How much can they work on that land? Do they have resources? It's, it's, it's another, you know, issue. But I think the crisis in Zimbabwe did not come about because of the land crisis. We had the land crisis for, you know, uh, for a long time, and the Zimbabwe government actually managed to make sure that at that particular point in time, they abused the land uh, question to actually remain in power at a time that they were, you know, almost going out. That, 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 that's what I feel. But I think that problem needs to be solved to soon enough, not later. Because if, if Mugabe goes and Morgan Changre comes in, the land question remains unresolved. 
And 10 years down the line, Morgan Changra is unpopular. What does he do? He goes back to the land, uh, land, uh, land, uh, land problem. He abuses it and uh, probably stays in power for the next five years. And someone else does the same. So I think the British government and the Zimbabwe government and the MDC should actually come together. I'm sorry, you know, you, you, actually, you said people, um, people refer to the MDC as the only political party, opposition political party in Zimbabwe. It is because it is the main, you know, opposition political party. There are, you know, fringe parties that are not, you know, not, um, not big parties. You, you talk of a party where you only know the leader and you don't know anyone <laughs> who follows them. So exactly, you, yeah. You cannot call that political party. We, we have one main opposition political party in Zimbabwe, and that is the MDC. So I feel as the major stakeholders, they need to come together to say, let us discuss how we go forward. And without them addressing the land issue in Zimbabwe, then we are not going anywhere, even if Robert Mugabe goes. Let's take a few more questions and we can come back. You can bring back the other points. Do you want to ask a quick question? Just a quick small comment. My name is Alfred Mdasa. I was the first general commander in the 60 Gorilla Army in the 60. And the, the question that this uh, film raises reminds me of the, the problems that we faced at the time. That is the, the, the prioritization the, uh, of land issue. And the film in all sorts of ways uh, seems to, 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 to downplay or to marginalize the issue of land. Uh, and the, the, the issue of uh, race in the distribution of land. And this is manifestly uh, uh, somewhat uh, uh, rendered uh, very insignificant and such. And I, I think uh, at the time when Zimbabwe uh, is concerned, we are involved uh, with a massive onslaught from Zimbabwe from a neoliberal capitalism. You find that uh, the, the issue of uh, quality, nature of politics that uh, emerges in the circumstances is very um, compromised. That's why you find that uh, uh, Bennett, a uh, rich white farmer, said when we, the white farmers, realized that um, Mugabe was serious about the land, we, the white farmers, formed the MDC. So this nonsense that the MDC is somewhat uh, a very democratic outfit, uh, interested in uh, affecting land redistribution in a fundamental way, I think is a myth. And uh, that uh, Mugabe's age uh, has been propped up in the film as a very ish, uh, important issue. I, I just find uh, any discourse in Zimbabwe these days is really full of... Uh, uh, this crude biologism, as I say, because uh, <laughs> you find that a uh, papa dog uh, can also beget uh, a baby dog. We found that in Haiti. And in Zimbabwe, you, the, the, the issue is not uh, Mugabe's age or Mugabe as a person, but the issue of land. And to imagine that Mugabe just invented the problem of land in, 1960, in, 19, uh, in uh, 2000, when he thought it was uh, uh, under pressure, he ignored the fact that. Uh, the, the issue of land would uh, have to, to confront any leader in Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe, and Mugabe was right to confront the issue of land. And that reminds me that uh, uh, as a young man, when I went to fight, uh, w w what we are having in MDC is an attempt to reverse the gains of the land issue. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Do you want to come back? I mean, this, this, this whole idea that, that, as the film was saying, that is an incredible, possibly toxic mix of, of, of the land debate, but the race debate as well. Um, do you think that that's what, in a sense, 
complicates the attempt to have any sort of uh, opposition politics that doesn't reduce itself to that. Yeah, I think in a big way it does compromise uh, what... Uh, well, I'll refer you to you as the old man. Don't, I hope you don't mind that. Yeah, that's how we usually refer to them in Zim. In Zim. So... I won't. I, I, I'm happy he doesn't mind that. Um, that's what the old man is referring to generally. The, the, we have had a problem uh, in Zimbabwe. I would also seek to address uh, your question by also addressing the, the question of the civil society that he referred to. We, you see, the crisis of post-coloniality in Africa is as a result of uh, the old... Uh, you know, historical legacies that are a backlash. And when you want to understand them, you have to understand them by way of uh, looking at what some people have called, you know, a perfect state. We have a situation where the civil society uh, in Zimbabwe, uh, in a normal situation, the civil society is supposed to operate within the state and, uh, you know, the family, within the state and the household. But you have a situation where in Zimbabwe, the civil society is operating with the market, uh, with market uh, motivations. As a result, because of those market motivations that George was referring to, the civil society is not really carrying the ideas of the people as a whole, you know, the masses. The civil society now is actually using the whole, uh, you know, problems in Zimbabwe, uh, you know, as a, a way of raising money. It is now a market, and that is the crisis that we are facing. But in the same uh, quest to address the issue of land, this is where you end up having the likes of Mkabe, then taking it up there to say, Tony Blair and the foundations and the Westminster and all, all the, all, you know, calling them all sorts of names, uh, you know, going back to the, uh, to, to, to the, to the race argument. And the crisis there is, unless and until the civil society lives out of that ambit, we will then be able to address the Zimbabwean crisis. He also raised the issue of the constitution, which is one major issue the civil society has been talking about. Unfortunately, now diluted by donor money, and there is a problem when you have uh, donor money on the other hand, and you have to use Mkabe as a market to get money, and the issue at the hand, I mean at hand that you are supposed to be addressing, which is a real issue, that, 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 that causes a problem. And this is one thing because of access to donor money and access to the media, which gives you uh, the limelight, which also causes what I have always called, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I will have to use some of these radical terms. Uh, I have always called, you know, what we are doing in Zimbabwe, uh, particularly with the colleagues, I have sometimes criticized them as, as, as celebrating a collective videos. We have had serious problems with uh, certain individuals who would tell you that... Uh, because you belong to a small uh, political party, therefore you don't constitute a party to be recognized. What then is democracy then? Is that not tyranny of the majority? That some people then have to, to belong to a big party in order to be recognized? What kind of thinking is that? Where, where are we taking Zimbabwe to if we are to embrace that kind of thinking? So those are some of the issues. We have a very, very big problem in Zimbabwe, which is not going to see Zimbabwe go, uh, attaining finally the freedom that is supposed, or liberation that is supposed, second form of liberation that is supposed to achieve. The reason is actually as a result of the mindsets that we have ourselves as people who claim to be opposed to Mugabe or who claim to be calling for change in Zimbabwe. For example, a lot of colleagues who are in the civil society, I work with in the civil society, call for regime change in Zimbabwe. And then I have asked them, what generally are your definitions of regime change in Zimbabwe? In simple terms, the regime change, regime change is the total, the total summation of people's hopes and aspirations. And in Zimbabwe, we first witnessed that in 1980. And I'm not sure whether you achieve regime change in a peaceful way or in a direct confrontation which sometimes leads to violence. 
And, in, and that would be the most unfortunate thing to give Mugabe the parapet to, to, to hammer you on a violent matter because he is very prepared on that. So that is where we have a problem. And this is why Mugabe always falls back on the race issue. Each time there is an issue, falls back on the race issue. It is the donor money, which we are failing to, to handle in the civil fraternity, I mean, the civil society fraternity. That's the problem we are, we are facing in Zimbabwe. Okay. I mean, if... The pattern of land ownership, the pattern of access to resources, the access to capital, the access to um, finance capital in the entire region is impossible to understand without the race question. It is not something that is invoked by. It is historically, it is marked by that. I wish it wasn't, believe you me, but it is. Okay? So you have, to, you have to somehow see the, the replacement of that process is in part and parcel of the decolonization process. It's a painful scenario, but we need to face up to it. Gramsci talks about things as they exist, not as I'd like them to be. Okay, so the idea that we think somehow you can sort of do a detour and sort of hide behind is the way in which whiteness works in that kind of Delusian way to deny its access to power. It's just bizarre. I don't subscribe to that. We really need to face up to the way in which the racialized, the way in which power, the pattern of ownership, the pattern of resources, who, the, the distinction between the rich and the poor is racialized in the region. It is also a diaspora society. You know, people were talking about you know, you know, whether someone comes from the north. I don't know about younger people born after I had gone somewhere else. You know? I, my mother is from the north, 35 miles north of Harare. My father is from near Jena, which is in the south near Baira border. Uh, if you, anyone comes from an area called Shan in Zimbabwe, most people call, they are called Shiri. You know? What do you have in Zimbabwe are not tribes. What do you have are history of families. And one of the things about the pattern of colonization did what disrupted the way in which families live. So this idea that somehow Zabu is pro-Ndebele and Zanu is pro-Shona is it's a fabrication. You will find Shiris in Zabu just as much as you find Shiris in da-da-da-da. Understanding the way in which Zimbabwe society is organized tells you the nature of the way in which the political scenario is played out. Now let me just kind of finish off. This thing about political institutions. You see, there's a difference between a people's alliance and an NGO. Okay? A people's alliance is, is something that makes sure that people, a, a political institution is accountable to people. We can, people can hold account to it. That's what democracy is about. An NGO isn't accountable to the people. It's accountable to its funders. And the problem for the main opposition party is just couldn't distinguish between the relationship constructing an alliance with the people and an alliance with NGOs. And clearly in that kind of smorgasbord, smorgasphere, it found itself open to attack. That's why it's always caricatured as an invention of the West, because it can't distinguish between those two things. And the, the point then is to recognize that there actually there are multiple voices of opposition in Zimbabwe. I might not agree with them, but they're there. You can't dismiss them simply because you don't know who their political leader is. Okay, so, very quickly, we're running out of time. We're running out of time. Is there one more question before we finish? And then yeah. lady at the back there, and then you can talk about price as well. Yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah, I'm just wondering, regardless of next year's election, how likely is it that civil war will end up in the country? Pardon? How likely is it that civil war will end up in the country? So. <laughs> 
very quickly, <laughs> how bad is it going to get? Uh, if you want to the well, if uh, the, the possibilities are, if the Congress, the ruling party Congress, that's going to take uh, place in, in, in December, if uh, it gives Mkabe the limelight to go, I mean, the, 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 the leeway to go ahead and, and, and represent them in the elections, uh, and, the, and if it continues the way it is in the opposition, that the opposition is also so much in disarray, the, the possibility is Mkabe is going to win. But then the answer to what you are portraying as a civil war, Zimbabwe will never have a civil war, forget it. Okay. No. I, I don't think Zimbabwe will ever, ever, in the next 20 or so years, have a civil war, in a, uh, mainly because of two reasons. One, because uh, the people who actually led the liberation struggle and suffered because of the liberation struggle are still alive. And those people would definitely not want to have another situation that we have in the 1970s. And two, because Zimbabwe is constructed in such a way that... Um, the Zimbabwe government is in control. The army is in control. I remember one day I was working on a story. I went to a press conference. It was, um, the army was giving a press conference in which they actually said, uh, they were telling Morgan Changrai that you will never rule Zimbabwe because you have no roots you know, inside the liberation struggle. So as we were going out, I, wanted, I, I went there because I wanted to ask one general a question. Uh, and we didn't know how to deal with it, so I went with a colleague. So I just tried to you know, doorstep him and ask him that question. And he said to me, he stopped... Um, and he's a, you know, an army general and you know, top and he said to me Sandra I don't want to be bothered by such kind of questions do you know how big the Zimbabwe's armory is? I said no do you know where the guns are? I said no and you know he, those questions that he asked me when I went home I, I, you know, it kept on ringing in my mind that nobody really knew where the guns were after the liberation struggle you know, if, if they were in the sandbag who, who is in control? and so because of that I know for sure that we are not going to have, you know, a, 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 a civil war in Zimbabwe in the near future. And as I said earlier that the only kind of person who is likely to command political leadership in Zimbabwe is somebody who addresses the land question. Mm -hmm. And if you don't find a solution to the land question, you will have, then you will have a civil, civil war scenario. Because it's, a, it's the ideal, it's the, sorry to use this, it's called what I might call the cultural effect. It is the one thing that is likely to drive Zimbabwe nuts if unless it is resolved one way or the other. It's a very conflictual Islamic society. And so people should not just throw superlatives at it. It's very seriously, deeply enmeshed in the psyche of Islam. So if you ask me what is likely to produce a powder cake effect, it's the land question. Clearly the resolution to it will guarantee peace in the long term, not just for Zimbabwe, mind you, but for the region as a whole. Now, Fortunately for Zimbabwe, unlike most of the other societies in the region, partly as an aftermath of colonization, part of the ways in which the families were displaced and so on, you cannot neatly divide Zimbabwe into little regions and here. We were talking the other day about a Mutlanga family in Mutare and a Mutlanga family in, 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 in Durban and a Mutlanga family in Hwangi. What else? This is not a derivation of the same name. They are, same, they are people who have shared the same DNA. You can't ask people to kill one another with that kind of very recent lived history. So in some ways those people who predict that somehow there's going to be blood on the horizon because of what's going on, you're just dreaming. That is not the case. The, the, the solution to Zimbabwe, a subject is beginning to recognize Zimbabwean solution is, is interconnected with dating regions in the dating, the fate of the dating countries in the region. Zimbabwe's future is interconnected with the future of the region. In the post-colonial moment, 
it's the regional institutions that matter. You know? Now, people of my generation, if you ask me where was I born or where you're from, I would say Dombashar. Now, I don't, some my children, people of my children's age might say from Harare. I don't know how to come from Harare. So you have to think about the moment in which the interregnum in which one is talking about. In the metropolitan centers of Zimbabwe, the MDC has support. I know that. In the countryside where majority of the people reside, it doesn't. So this idea that somehow you can propel it into state house without having a popular politics that speaks to the majority of the people in and through the land is their albatross. In that context, I love them to bits, but I doubt very much if they'll convince anyone. Listen to me, Ben. Charlie. You slightly run over. We slightly run over, Shani, um, with the time. Can I just say a couple of things, though? We're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, first of all, this is going to be a podcast. So if anybody, um, for some reason, has an objection to being voiced, they should tell me afterwards. The nice thing to say is that we can continue the conversation in the atrium, which is in the main building where we're going to have some drinks. So you're all invited to go back round the corner to the main building where the, in the atrium and uh, continue the conversation. Um, I'd also like to say thank you very much to Fatima Manji, who's done a fantastic job in putting this whole event together. And also thanks very much to our guests for being here tonight and, of course, to Shrenik for the film. Thanks very much.